This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast. There can be only one. Today we're talking about dueling in popular culture in light of the recent release of the film The Last Duel. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, always prepared to defend my honor through a dance-off. This is Dylan Casey. I only duel by arm wrestling. Cliff Mark in uh, Toronto, Canada, and safe from duels because seldom up at dawn. Uh, very good. Well prepared. So, Cliff, it was through a discussion with you beforehand that you prompted this topic. Before we actually get into it, just say a little about who you are, about your other podcast, stuff like that. I am a former uh, academic political theorist who kind of dropped the academic world. I started podcasting. I have a political theory philosophy podcast called Good in Theory. So I do like great texts, discussions with experts, discussions with people I find interesting or just talk about movies something theoretical, something philosophical. But my interest in dueling goes a little bit further back. It was basically the topic of my political theory dissertation. It was all about dignity, honor, dueling culture. And so uh, I love this stuff. And I think, while there are drawbacks to dueling, that's at least one way to resolve your differences. <laughs> so Dylan and I saw this, this film. We were looking for an opportunity. You had actually, I think you had you proposed coming on the Partially Examined Life. And so you get half of that today, that we have half of our hosts on with you, and nobody else. We had invited a past guest, a, a female perspective, uh, and she could not make it at the last minute, so we're going to be three dudes talking about a Me Too movie. I, uh, okay. <laughs> but this is, of course, a much broader topic than just this one film that we're using more or less as an excuse. Uh, you know, when you said you were so into dueling, I was looking, it just by coincidence, I had heard of this film coming out in a couple months. And we didn't know anything about it in advance when we decided to do this. However, there are our older, you know, that this is the most recent Ridley Scott film. And his oldest film, 1977's The Duelists, provides a nice sort of bookend to his career so far in dealing with this topic. And this has long been, uh, you know, a recurrent and I would say kind of annoying thing in, in various, you know, <laughs> that tragedy of Hamilton, what happens to his son. Bridgerton was a thing on Netflix in the last year, which had a, a dueling subplot that was sympathetic people that are driven to acrimony in this potentially deadly way that, I, I don't know, my wife in particular, Dylan's sister, will roll her eyes in great disgust whenever a dueling plot comes up as that this is just some sort of dramatically manufactured historical relic pulled in here to cause some conflict between people who otherwise would just be getting along happily. One of the reasons I think for that is actually articulated really well in Cliff's piece, which Cliff, I, I, I thought was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank and, you. And I so, so this is an essay on Eon we will link folks to. Yeah. I didn't know you had written a thesis that had a big significant part of this on dueling, but I thought that this question of honor being at stake in dueling and question of status, let's put it that way, is one of the reasons I think that it's eye-roll worthy has to do with the fact that dueling is typically amongst equals who are then adjudicating their relative status in response to an insult, but it's an insult amongst equals. And I think one of the reasons why you one would eye roll at the whole idea is that most people who are not in that elite group suffer indignities and lack of status on a routine basis. And they just have to put up with it. 
<laughs> and, right. and the idea that you would resolve a difference regarding status by deadly means seems like a bunch of people who don't even have a clue about how the world works for most people. That's the basic thing, that they, that they are so stuck in their elitist view of the world, and it just seems kind of pathetic. That's what it feels like. That's why I think it's eye-roll-worthy. But I do think it's a serious question. In part of your piece, you then also talk about how, why did dueling become even more prevalent as the fall of aristocracy happened? And you say something I think is really makes a lot of sense, which is as you democratize elitism, then the people who are newcomers to it want to use the ways of adjudicating status that have been used before. They want to have the status of the past status. And so they gravitate towards doing that as a sort of sanctioned way or a previously sanctioned way. And it has the status of being the way the real elites used to do it. And so now we'll do it so that I can have actual true status. We're going to do it the old school way because that is even more status granting. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, to me, obviously, it's an interesting topic. One thing, if we start with the last duel, right? I just want to do a little bit of clarification about what we mean by dueling because there's a lot of different kinds. So in the movie, The Last Duel, that's like a medieval judicial duel. You have a legal dispute. You can't find out the truth. You do like a fight and God is on the side of truth. You decide the truth of the matter. There's supposed to be a winner and a loser. But that's like a different thing than we were just talking about, yeah, about this. Yeah. You've besmirched my honor. We have to do pistols at dawn or, you know, whatever. And both of them can be like eye rolly macho things. And especially the second one, almost every time you see it in the specific dueling context, there is a bit of an implicit eye roll. Like even in the academic history books about this stuff, there are people just like insulting the duelist. It's very hard to people for people to understand it or to see it as anything but that. It's actually harder to find examples of what dueling was supposed to be doing then, right? Which is that you're supposed to be settling your differences in a way that doesn't produce a winner or a loser, right? So you insult me. I say, hey, let's duel. Let's, you need to give me satisfaction. We fight. We risk our lives. We're not supposed to die. Most people didn't die in a duel. And then afterwards, we can both say, hey, you know, we are willing to risk our lives for honor. That means we're cool. We're both honorable. Our status is restored. And uh, we can go about our business. That is why, unlike the other kind of judicial duels, this was such an important ritual or way of asserting equal status. Because you don't throw someone out at the end. This is like you have a breach, you have someone takes offense, you have an insult, but the way to get everyone back on board and kind of restore the relationship of equality is to just do this fight. And hopefully no one gets hurt. Sometimes people do. But afterwards, we're like buddies. So... I mean, I often say that, like, it's often the buddy movie that gives a better idea of how duels were supposed to work, right? Like, a lot of buddy movies, you start with a fight, and then you learn respect for each other through the fight, and then you're friends after. And this is not just a historical relic. This might be even, I don't want to go so far as to say natural. I would have to do some anthropological work to (laughs) ferret out whether it happens in all cultures. But my only fight that I have ever had, age 11, (laughs) getting picked on, by the, the same guy for quite a long time. Finally, we fought behind the school for a little bit. 
And after that, it wasn't so bad, at least not with that guy. Right. I had been raised to sensibly think that violence is never the answer to have nothing but scorn for the people that just like, you're looking at me funny. Let's go <laughs> like that, you know, sort of what happens in every ninja movie. <laughs> like that's the, I heard Jackie Chan talking about like, yeah, a lot of the plots of my early movies were just like, <laughs> you looking at me, let's go. <laughs> You know, looking at someone funny is actually a historically an actionable insult in a lot of cultures. So it certainly it is a palpable insult now. It's just a question of how you resolve it, right? Yeah. So one of my the reasons it's not just resistance to the historical form that makes me not like this generally so much in pop culture, but the fact that it's a simplifying technique. I recall saying to somebody, I think this is during Bush versus Hussein or something. Can we just not have wars? Can we just have, you know, the David and Goliath thing? And the fact this, again, keeps coming up that during the last election, Biden and Trump were talking (laughs) about beating on each other, having a fist fight and who would win in a fist fight. It sure would be some very infantile part of us would like all giant mass complicated conflicts to boil down to this thing. And so, so many like the end of, uh, not the current movie Dune, but the original story Dune, the fact that like, you know, we've got a war, we've got all this potential complication and somehow we're going to engineer stuff so that the young hot representatives of each side are just going to fight to the death and that's going to solve it. We're just going to let that solve it. Well, did you know that before he was prime minister, Justin Trudeau did like a exhibition boxing match against a conservative uh, senator? <laughs> did he drop out? <laughs> That rings a bell, actually. I, but I, I, uh, hey, nice one. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> they bet their hair, uh, I think, because the other, the other guy had like long hair and Justin's was famous for his hair. So yeah, they did an exhibition match and Justin won. By decision, I assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't a knockout. Uh, so like one of the things I wanted to mention since you brought in like Dune and all these other, uh, movies is that we already distinguished between the judicial duel and the duel of mm-hmm. honor. But then there's this broader sense of dueling where it's just any one-on-one combat or one-on-one conflict. It could be a chess game or something, for example. And I think it's an interesting question just to ask, how does that work in movies? Because I think it's obviously doing something different. If we are both 19th century guys challenging each other to a duel in London, it's going to be different than why Ridley Scott puts one in Gladiator and Alien or, you know, any of his movies. So Gladiator and other things that where you have a manufactured combat, it seems easier to put those in something like a dueling category. But it doesn't seem to me that it's the case that every instance of fighting, even one-on-one fighting in life or in a narrative is a duel. And the reason I would say that is because none of they don't always seem to involve honor. They just seem to involve life. I'm trying to get from here to there and you're in my way and I'm going to beat you up until I get past you. And that's the source of conflict and plot. And it's not a question of, you know, in the Bourne identity when Jason Bourne is in hand-to-hand fisticuffs with an individual or even the long run plot in, you know, a lot of these action movies where there's some primary bad guy that there's a chess game between them and, you know, your good guy is picking off individual bad guys along the way. And then eventually there's this kind of mano a mano at the end. 
maybe that gets infused with a little bit of dueling aspect to it, but it still seems to me that usually it's a case of it's just a straight up combat. Well, and in particular, the Steven Spielberg debut film, 1971's Duel, <laughs> I did not rewatch for this because I remember enough of it. See, that has nothing to do <laughs> with dueling as we were talking about it. It's just a guy in a car gets in a fight with a truck whose driver, I believe, is never shown or, may, or not shown until the very end something. You know, that there's some sort of, you know, you're following me too close kind of road rage source to it. But it's basically no logic to it whatsoever. And then just have this ongoing, epic, wordless battle throughout the whole thing. You know, that's kind of like a video game. Is it just a mistake? Is it a dually? Is it like a four-wheel, rear-wheel drive truck? And it should have been D-U-A-L, <laughs> the duel? <laughs> Maybe not. Karate Kid is, a, I think, a great example of how this, you know, it could just be conflict. And in fact, it starts with all these, and this is done, of course, in the new Cobra Kai iteration. You get to see this, you know, again and again and again, where it's just the everyday disrespect of people that could just be resolved with a permanent caste system of <laughs> you're allowed to be <laughs> yeah. mean to me because you're a bully and I'm just going to take it because I'm above all that, which was my status in school until that fateful day at age 11. But then, you know, things can get completely out of hand, can become a, a free-for-all, more dangerous, actually channeling it into something that has conventions. You know, we're going to take this to the tournament instead of beating each other up in the parking lot. Like, that seems an actual progress. Like, if we could actually, with the politicians, do that thing instead of having war, there would be something great about that. So there is something that the duel definitely, as you're pointing out in your essay, Cliff, served a social function. A lot of people thought dueling actually reduced violence because if you compare it to, say, a blood feud, right? You insult someone, you hurt someone in one, in one person's family, you wind up in this tit-for-tat, centuries-long conflict where you have to keep picking off people from each other's families. At least the duel, whilst you run a risk, it's like one and done. It's supposed to end the conflict. And it's the same appeal with the single combat of uh, David and Goliath or some other politician, army-type single combat. Were you able to, Dylan, did you see The Duelists, the old Ridley Scott film? I did not, but I'm happy to hear about it. <laughs> yes, well, I'm sure most of our audience will not have seen that as well. So it's a, a long run. It's like a 15-year-long conflict during Napoleonic France, which I think does start with uh, it's Keith Carradine and who's the other guy? Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel, yes. And I think it starts in that kind of like, Harvey Keitel does not like the way the guy is talking to him. Like, it's as simple as that. <laughs> Even though 15 years later, nobody can remember exactly. <laughs> like, they have very different versions of, oh, this must have been, there must have been some really significant event that sets this off. But Harvey Keitel is this uh, accomplished duelist who is, in fact, Keith Carradine, his character has gone to chastise him at the order of his general for engaging in this and does it in such a way that then Harvey Keitel wants to duel him right there. And then it gets delayed by the fact that there are war and there are rules that if you're not the same rank, then you can't duel. But, you know, as there are breaks in the war, then, you know, four years later, they have a duel. You know, the, so it's a, four or five times during the film as this grudge gets spread out pretty much all because the Harvey Hotel character is a crazy asshole. And the Keith Carradine character, like, you know, it's the rules of gentlemanly. He's, he's the aristocrat and feels like he has to go along with this honor thing, even though... You know, especially as we get more and more into it, like, if you have a life, <laughs> shouldn't you pay attention to your life rather than this thing? What did I miss, Cliff? 
Well, I mean, if you're putting your life before your honor, you're obviously not even in the <laughs> circle of people that would be doing like, I love the movie The Duelist. I like it visually. I think he, Scott does this great job of turning the, the film into almost paintings, right? There's these great tableau. The sword fights are great. I think, you know, what I'm trying to say about dueling and how it was used to resolve conflicts, that doesn't happen at all in this movie. Harvey Keitel is a psychopath. He's starting duels for no reason. And instead of doing a duel where they finally settle it and their honors are both intact, he just keeps coming back for more. And that's why the Keith Carradine character is always trying to duck out of cafes so he isn't seen by Harvey Keitel because you can't refuse a duel. If someone insults you or if someone challenges you, you're supposed to answer as a man of honor. But you're also not supposed to be challenging everyone all the time. You're not supposed to be fighting you know, six, 14 duels over the course of your life. You're supposed to settle your differences and then go about it. But Keitel, he's just obsessed with killing this guy. So it's an obsession that would have been frowned upon in the actual uh, cultures of honor at the time. It's hard, I guess, as you were saying, to encounter an instance of this in film or something where it's not also being criticized insofar as it's actually recognizing that there is this historical thing dueling, then of course it has to be a critique of it. And in the last duel that we all saw, I saw it in the theater with Dylan, is the biggest critique of all of it, which is that the men doing this, well, there is sort of a subplot in The Duelists where Keith Carradine sort of loses out on a girlfriend early on because he, he insists on staying in this dueling mode and clinging to this ancient version of honor. But in the last duel, the entire last third of the movies, well, save the actual duel that happens, is entirely focused on the wife of one of the characters who is the supposed cause of their rift. But really, their rift is petty and goes back very far. And there are all sorts of slights involved with it. And anything they have to complain about is completely trivial <laughs> compared to like, the sexual violence that, you know, this is not a spoiler. This is the premise of the movie that the actual premise of the movie is this rape that occurred in 1500s, 1300s. I'm not 1386. Sure. It was, uh, yeah, 13. 13 yeah. There you go. 1386 and how this was judicially decided through a duel. The reason it's called the last duel is that historically it was the first formal judicial duel. Like it actually was sanctioned as part of the judicial process. In France. After that, there were no other judicial duels. That's right. The first one in a while. It had been illegal for some years before this. And they cover this. Movie. Okay. It had never been illegal. Yeah. It just had never been used. And this was a question that was raised to the king. Somebody says, Isn't that, didn't we get rid of this? No, no, no. Actually, we didn't get rid of that. It's up to you. <laughs> yeah. If you still want to have a duel. He's like, Sure, let's have a duel. I thought the implication was that hundreds of years before this, this might have been something that was done with some frequency, a la Game of Thrones where they're just always willing seemingly to pull that out of their asses at any moment of like, no, you can't imprison me. I demand travel and combat. I appoint my brutish second to uh, fight for me. I have no idea about that. In the movie, it was not hundreds of years ago. It was sort of half a generation ago was the last duel, the last judicial duel, like you know, 10 or 20 years ago. I think I remember even there was one that's sort of a borderline case with a guy called Jarnac that happened in France, even in the 1500. But trial by combat had been a thing already since, I don't know, 500 AD. So it had been around a while, and it may have fallen into disuse because they were pretty infrequent. But sometimes you just, you can't find evidence on either side, and you gotta let people duke it out. You need a verdict. It's certainly all over Arthuriana. We just did a King Arthur episode not that long ago, 
And in the actual written versions of that, it's just, why is King Arthur the king? Well, because he went and he fought a bunch of people. And it becomes a narrative challenge of like, he's going to fight Lancelot, but Lancelot never loses. Is one of them have to die here? No, no, they can uh, (laughs) make friends. They can do it the right way, as Cliff was describing, and become allies. I mean, in that way of the idea of it resolving conflict and that status and leadership position or status position comes out of physical conflict, that part seems, even if it's not formalized, seems to be just a matter of fact in human history, right? The people with the power are the people who won the battles. And if you want to get analogical about it, I mean, there was the physical battle, but then there might be, why did the robber barons win? You know, and have the ones who had the powers because they're the ones who figured out economically how to eliminate everybody else. And so certainly in terms of the status and power, and those two aren't too separable in this cases, you can imagine status and power being separable. Like Mother Teresa might have status, but no power. But it seems like, I don't know, if I think about it, it's always routine, you know, a routine feature of human society that you would, especially historically, resolve these things. Marshally, even if it wasn't a formal structure of a duel, you go take people's stuff. Sure. I recall Thomas Hobbes making a big deal about like the inherent physical superiority of one person over another is not going to be sufficient for any political action because we can just gang up on each other. In other words, in fundamental political organization, the taking stuff that you're describing is not going to be one on one. And we have even, you know, Black Panther recently is trying to model some sort of tribal. If you want to be the new leader, you have to challenge the old leader. That's, again, a thing in Dune that is throughout the Fremen way. That's something that we impute on savage societies, whether, in fact, historical societies actually use this or not. I don't know the answer to that, but it seems not terribly unreasonable that at least some of the time, you know, or at least you could develop a tradition rather than somebody's causing trouble. Let's all jump on them at the same time of like, you want to challenge? Okay, you can challenge the current leader and the rest of us are going to stand back. As long as we feel like you are worthy to approach that leader, you know, so it's really the crowd that has the power in this situation, because whatever's going on between the two combatants for leadership, the crowd could just fall on them and (laughs) create chaos again if they decide to. I would just throw in that there's this kind of superficial similarity that violence solves a lot of problems. We use power and violence to like resolve conflicts and maybe dueling is an example of that. Obviously, there's a connection because it was military guys who were really into dueling a lot. But the way it was arranged was specifically to get rid of these inequalities of power. It was the ritual of making it equal that kind of made the duel. So you measure your swords, you pick the same weapons, and you make sure that everything in the combat is equal. So everyone's risking death. So all those like inequalities of power, whoever has the better artillery that you get on the army level, dueling is trying to bracket that. And like one of the really interesting details is a lot of the arguments when they were switching from swords to pistols or different kinds of swords, it was that, well, some kinds of swords, it takes too much skill. So people who'd studied fencing are just going to always win. So the duel can't serve its function of both people risking their lives. So they actually took the worst weapon, the dueling pistol that was a smooth bore weapon that was not very accurate because then it's more rolling the dice. And it's not about who's the best fighter. It's about both of us are willing to put it on the line. Another film that I watched to prep for this called The Duelist, without an S, 2016. It's in Russian. And some of the duels in that were just basically Russian roulette. 
We each have a pistol. One of them has a bullet in it. We're both going to just hold them to each other's head from this far away. There's no skill involved whatsoever and just take a shot. And if it backfires or is the one without the bullet or whatever, then I guess you lose. And hopefully there's a malfunction so somebody doesn't die. I mean, that serves the purposes of dueling honor perfectly, but it wouldn't be as as great of a film trope as a <laughs> 10 minute fencing scene on a staircase. So the overall plot of this is there's a, a guy who was born a nobleman and this person in power because this guy had killed his underling or something, he gets the whole family kicked out of the nobility. And in fact, the guy is exiled to the Aleutian Islands. So he manages to make his way back. He takes on a different identity of somebody that was in the Aleutian Islands dead, you know, a noble. So he has papers for this other person and becomes a professional duelist. But you can only do that in this society if you are already a noble. So it's only because he has these fake papers that he's allowed to continue doing that. Of course, it's getting him ever closer to challenging this guy that put him in the, in the predicament in the first place. Who knows that he is not actually who he says he is. And so that's been sort of the pattern that if he just challenged him to a duel in the first place, he could have done that. But because he didn't, the guy had him, you know, defrocked, denobilized. And now he's in a position where he, no, I'll just have my people come and beat you up because I don't have to accept your challenge. And it's only through sort of a bunch of plot machinations that the brother of this dead guy ends up vouching for him and says, oh, yes, he actually is my dead brother. Then he's allowed to take on, you know, in the final battle, this skill-free Russian roulette thing I was describing. Let's stop and uh, pay the bills. Let's talk about Bespoke Post and their box of awesome collection. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. And they have a cool subscription service where you take a quiz at boxofawesome.com about what kind of stuff you're into, and they will suggest one of the many boxes that they put together every month. Each box costs $45, has over $70, often up to $100 worth of gear inside. You decide whether you want it. You can skip any time, and you get something cool like Flame. That's a box that is a miniature indoor fireplace. Or Shawl, which is a toasty Shetland wool cardigan Feast, which is a carving knife and fork set, or Unbound, which is an awesome pair of true wireless earbuds. With each box of awesome, you're supporting small business. 90% of everything that comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand. No matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From autumn craft beers to cozy threads to camping gear essentials, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code Pretty at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code pretty for 20% off your first box. I also want to tell you about the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. How about this for a holiday gift or something to treat yourself? Upgrade your shower experience. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is a piece of high-tech engineering put together by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. It's got twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads, right? It sprays 81% more power from the competition, despite using 45% less water. Now, they just sent me their newest shower head, the Nebbia by Moen Quattro, which features four unique and powerful spray modes to satisfy all types of shower preferences. My preference is to switch it from the regular Moen spray with its atomized droplets, its very spa-like, fill-the-space kind of feeling, to the hard spray at some point during the shower. And I recommend getting the version with the hose so you can pull it off and wash your feet or your dog. 
Installing this was super easy. I just got a wrench to unscrew my old shower head, and the new one fits in just like a light bulb. It is the work of mere minutes. You can choose between various finishes to match your shower. They offer a lot of similarly well-engineered bathroom accessories like the quick dry earth mat that they sent me it is very cool the nebbia by moen spa shower starts at just 199 dollars and for pretty much pop listeners we have a deal for you go to nebbia.com slash pretty use the code pretty at checkout to get 10 percent off all nebbia products and even better nebbia is offering free shipping in the u.s on their newest shower nebbia by moen quattro for just a few more days again go to nebbia.com slash pretty that's n-e-b-i-a.com slash pretty so check out what they have to offer and save 10% with that code PRETTY. Finally, Uncommon Goods. If you are on a mission to be the best gift giver ever this year, Uncommon Goods makes it easy to find remarkable and truly unique gifts for anyone. Whatever they're into, Uncommon Goods has the perfect gift from art to jewelry to kitchen, home and bar. Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you could find just anywhere. They've got thousands of items to make your holiday season stress-free. For instance, if you've got a little office function, well, they've got a whole section of unusual and artistic desk accessories, like a wooden star-shaped sunglasses holder, a floating moon desk lamp, a wooden animal stand to put your phone on, the empowered sparrow desktop sculpture, a handmade felt dreidel, a sweet basil self-watering globe. This is just in one section you will definitely be able to find something cool. Now, the unique gifts at Uncommon Goods can sell out fast, so shop now and get it taken care of early. They have the most meaningful out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere, and with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash PMP, as in PMP for pretty much pop. It's uncommongoods.com slash PMP for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer, Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. What you're describing reminds me of A Knight's Tale. Heath Ledger plays the hero in that movie. And of course, it's basically a story I guess in this way, of one duel after another, right? But they're more like combats in the structure of medieval jousting competitions and uh, fighting competitions. But one of the main points is that he is not a knight and he's masquerading as a knight. In fact, getting fake papers made for him so he can participate in these competitions as an equal. And then he is found out basically by a guy, you know, the bad guy, is going to lose to him, probably. He's a very good, you know, very good fighter, but he's going to lose to him. He's afraid of it. So he finds out that he's a commoner and gets him thrown in jail. And it's at the stockade that the king shows up and from a previous encounter considers him an honorable man and then manufactures that he actually was of noble birth and therefore knights him. So then he can go fight the bad guy on equal footing. It's this credentialism in dueling that's uh, really the bane of the, of the institution. It's like, I feel like it's like kind of like exposing these German politicians for having fake PhDs. Their reputation takes a hit and they can't be part of the elite anymore. There's this dual D-U-A-L aspect to the status question, right? Which is who gets to be legitimately part of the confrontation such that they're equals enough to be doing that. And then there's the question of the resolution. Right. And so you can't even have a dual a conflict unless you have uh, members that are equal enough 
to resolve the question of insult. I really like this uh, Knight's Tale angle on the story because usually the critique of dueling is this is just these elite bastards dueling each other, these aristocrats. And as you say, the people from the lower orders have to suffer indignity and insult all the time. But the very fact that it was an institution that asserted equality, at least between elites, there's always that borderline about who gets to count, who gets to actually become honorable. And in this case, the Heath Ledger character, he's sort of the underdog. He is, you know, becoming equal. And it's by means of fighting these other nobles that he's able to do it. So there is always this thing. On the one hand, dueling was an elite thing and excludes people who weren't allowed to duel or who were not, you know, respectable enough to be able to take offense to anything. But it expanded. And as people gained status as bourgeois guys joined universities and military officer corps, they started challenging people. And in that sense, dueling became an instrument for equality rather than elitism, even though it never, never really got to everyone. So Cliff, what is your sense on as a as philosophy guy on the connection between this and Hegel? Let's throw out another piece of his, <laughs> his formation of the self by risking your life in a very real way. And, and the picture of that is actually in, is not in, a, in the master-slave conflict. In other words, not in a position of equality. And it happens that actually only the slave, by being beaten, gets a sense of, a firm sense of self, right? This thing that beat me is not me. I can define myself in opposition to me. Whereas the master is sort of, since there's no real impediment, I have defeated all comers, that I will never actually gain some sort of self-consciousness and so they actually, ironically, come out deficient of this. Hegel just uses this as a, as a metaphor, maybe, for the entire growth of a mature self. I mean, is this sort of mutual self-recognition? It seems like that is what the, at least, I'm going to affirm your status as an equal, and you're going to affirm my status. Like, that actual mirroring seems to work better than the master-slave picture. Yeah, I, well, you know, dueling and Hegel are two of my favorite words as a philosophy guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Hegel was probably more influenced by dueling culture than most people ever mention. And I think this whole focusing on struggle to the death, existential face to your death, I think probably you should think of that maybe through an honor culture lens. So the initial conflict in the master-slave dialectic, they are equal. It's only in virtue of one of them gives up that he becomes a slave. And the slave, of course, doesn't get mutual recognition or develop an identity right away. It's only over the course of several more dialectical cycles that you eventually wind up with this mutual recognition, which I think is where the struggle to the death is supposed to get you down the road. And I also would want to mention, there's a earlier text, earlier Hegel text called The System of Ethical Life. And there, he uses the words Viscount dual, and it's a much shorter step. So the dialectic is basically crime. Someone does a crime on you, they insult you, they steal your stuff, who knows? You go after them. There's a struggle to the death, and it is that response to the insult of the crime and this struggle to the death that eventually leads you to ethical society, to social life. So for Hegel, this facing your death, the reason it's useful is because it makes you free. It makes you realize that you're not just going to break down and be a coward, and every time someone threatens you, do whatever they say. You're willing to risk your life, then you can act on your will. And when you see other people doing that in a duel, then you might respect their freedom. And that's how you get to mutual recognition. But I think in both of those dialectics for Hegel, the duel, the risking your life is a key part of it because 
if you don't, then you wouldn't have put into practice your freedom beyond just empirical instrumental behavior. And that seems to give a history of ethics that probably accurately says ethics is not universalist to begin with, right? It is not Kantian. It is not all other rational beings in the universe. I have to pay attention to them. It's not the face of the other confronting me that, no, it's within the small circle of people that I respect and respect me. Then we have certain rules of the way we deal with each other and everybody else that's outside that, that is beneath that. This is sort of, this is the master morality as Nietzsche defined it, you know, to start with is just not even worthy of pity. Like we, we just don't think of them at all. They're just not part of the equation. Well, there's a lot of different ways to treat inferiors, right? Like you wouldn't respect a child as an equal, but you'd certainly have ethical principles governing your conduct towards children. And I, I, th- I think that's probably the same in a lot of different hierarchical relationships. For someone to be completely outside, dehumanized, subject to no ethical constraints, I think that's a special case. It's not just inequality. I guess I'm saying that it's not a special case. It's the standard border case, right? That we might have that now, even though we have a Kantian, everybody has human rights. We have that sort of attitude, as you say, toward children, perhaps, but more so even toward animals, where there's an actual disagreement on clearly they're outside of the ethical community. You know, we can't demand ethical action of them. And so we don't have the same one-on-one of equals action toward them, but it becomes a matter of debate on how wide we're going to stretch that circle. We have to have some sort of principles for dealing with the environment generally and with animals in particular within that, that I guess must have to come from some other source or be a modification, a mutation of this primal ethical attitude. If we're accepting that story that, you know, the primal ethical attitude is toward equals in the same social class. So a big part of the status question is who you confer the status on. And you mentioned examples like animals or children, right? But it seems to me that those are examples where, yeah, there might be some arguments at hand about conferring equal status as human beings. But the ones that we have continually are amongst, let's just call us classes of adults, right? Classes of adult human beings where you get status divisions based upon gender, class, race. Pick an axis, you know, there's lots of different axes. And that then it seems like you have the aspect of dueling, which you, uh, Clifford, you know, interpreted my or commented on the pointing to the nice tail as a way to cross into status. So there's like a provisionality of equality <laughs> that lets you get in. So then you can duel and demonstrate that you belong to the class. And then there's the adjudication of conflict or disagreement within that class. And I think one of the big challenges here is, again, various kinds of power that prevent that equality because a key aspect of dueling is its martialness. Even if we, you know, say, let's all put, let's all use crappy pistols instead of something that requires skill. I guess unless you went as far as to have leveling be genuine leveling, then I guess it could still work, right? As long as you can use it regardless of physical ability, let's say. You could make it so it was all just mechanized. You could do the Russian roulette style. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you guys maybe is that, you know, we've talked a lot about dueling as a status thing and the different kinds of duels, but we watched a bunch of movies with duels in them. And so I think if we're talking about movies and dueling, I think it's really interesting to see what what are the functions of the duel 
What is it showing in the different movies? Because I think as a movie trope, often it's there just to kind of spice up some other conflict. So I think it works differently in The Last Duel than in The Duelist than in whatever other movie. So yeah, I was wondering if you guys can like think of, I don't know, typologies are typical kinds of ways it's used in movies and maybe why it might be annoying for, for some people when it comes up. So one that's very much outside this convention thing, I just you know was looking for things with duel in the title. I found another movie from 2016, Woody Harrelson and Liam Helmsworth called The Duel. Have you guys heard of this one? I watched the trailer. I was super excited. I'm like, I don't think this is, I don't think this is a duel I'm looking for. <laughs> 26% Rotten Tomatoes. And it's yeah. in the Old West with the, uh, the marshals on the southern border. The Woody Harrelson character has created a apocalypse now Colonel Kurtz, Heart of Darkness, cult around himself in the middle of nowhere here, where he has the power of life over death. And this character played by Liam Hemsworth, who is, is a representative of the law, who comes into town and it happens that this guy killed his father at the beginning of the movie. And so it's just a matter of like, they're civil at first and kind of like, oh, you're welcome to town, but I'm plotting against you and seducing your wife and things. And, and you know, eventually based on the title that eventually, you know, you're going to have a long, drawn out shooting at each other with just these two guys left. And it is very much, even though there's some sort of acknowledgement of honor originally and sort of the Woody Harrelson character sees himself as like, I created you by killing your father. You wouldn't have been half the man you are today. if I." And he has some definite respect for this guy and invites him to be sheriff of the town and sort of the initial move when he meets him. But you know this is going to degenerate to lawlessness, that there is something about the veneer of the duel is presented here as, you know, a veneer of honor. You know, it's like we're going to, yeah, sure, let's have a representative of each of the armies come out and fight. But then if my guy loses, we're just going to attack you anyway. Like, that that's actually what would happen. You would not actually, you know, unless there was some superior Leviathan figure over you enforcing, like the king, enforcing the duel and its outcome as being legitimate, you know, outcome of a trial, something like that. If it really is just an institution unto itself that everybody just has to respect, then I think at least this kind of film is proclaiming that that sort of civilized pretense is not going to last very long at all. It's only going to last insofar as you think you're winning. Well, in the duelists, there is not an institution that is enforcing this. In fact, most of our uh, dueling materials, pop culture things, like this is something that is illegal. This is something that is left over from a historical time that is just this honor culture that has persisted. And so there's nobody enforcing it except the honor itself. Well, interestingly enough, most of the, the big dueling culture that people think of, all these honor duels after the last duel, they were always illegal. So they weren't historical holdovers or throwbacks. When dueling was at its height, it was illegal everywhere where people were practicing it. And so that was why it served so well as this kind of expression of equality and freedom it's because you're doing this in defiance of the law of the leviathan yeah i was just going to say that in fact having it be illegal adds cachet to it so the mechanism of enforcement is actually in some ways even stronger because it's cultural so what i have to believe is that by and large in the community that they cared about people who participated in duels got status from doing so Oh, yeah, absolutely. That it worked. Yeah, like in The Duelists, they talk about that, how the Keith Carradine character, even though he's sort of only reluctantly brought into this, because he has fought this guy a couple times, he's gained some notoriety. He's 
but you still get the feeling, especially as it goes on. And part of this is about sort of the death of a particular culture, you know, over the course of this 15 years as Napoleon has his rise and is defeated eventually. And, and as these people are getting older, it makes less and less sense. There is just no social repercussions in their final duel in that film. If the guy had just said, no, go to hell, get out of here. I'm not going to fight you one more time. The guy would have bad-mouthed him, but that's a, he was already bad-mouthing them. Like, it would have been no loss of anything. He was already on the outs. He seemed down and out, Harvey Keitel. And it was, at that point, uh, the other character was already, get it. he was in with the Restored King, so he was in good shape. It seemed kind of almost out of pity and respect for their old equality that he bothered. But one thing I want to add about the status thing. It's true that people would fight and gain some notoriety and status, but... The main point of status at stake in dueling wasn't about gaining it through fighting good. It was more about losing status. So think of it as a binary thing. We think of status as you can climb this ladder, there's a pyramid, whatever. In these honor cultures, it was very much binary. You either have intact honor or you're dishonored. And you get dishonored by someone insults you and you don't challenge them to a duel. Or someone challenges to a duel, but you don't accept and people think you're a coward. That kind of thing. So whilst people did definitely duel to gain some notoriety, the status at stake was usually they were afraid that they were going to look like a punk if they didn't. And that would have just left them completely outside of the circle. I guess for the conclusion here, are there any other films besides The Last Duel that anybody wanted to bring up? We haven't really talked about Westerns. I mean, there's the whole... Like, I'm the biggest gun in the West and everybody can, or, you know, it could be an arm wrestling film or trope or something that, you know, once you've said, Luke versus you know, Vader. That, yeah. Yes. That, well, once you've said, I'm, I'm the greatest of all time, then it, it invites all challengers to come to you. And this could be just a purely a cultural thing that like, I can beat anybody in one in one basketball. And once I've sort of declared that, then I will get a lot of challenges until I give up that title. And that seems like how boxing culture works and things like that, that. It's not required that anybody be part of boxing culture. Nobody's going to say you're a coward if you even you were in boxing culture and you're like, no, I'm retired now. That's fine. Like, there's no dishonor in any of that. You said, are there any that we left out? The one that I thought of immediately was Princess Bride, in part because there is, on the one hand, a send up of dueling culture going on. There's a bit of making fun of it, but it's also serious about it because in this case, the serious part of it is the part that's about vengeance. And so in that way, the final conflict isn't about actually having a duel. He's there to kill the guy who killed his father. Men in tights. <laughs> that's one of my favorite dueling challenges in cinema. When Carrie always slaps, I think, is it Richard Lewis with the, I can't remember. No, 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 the sheriff with the, Sarandon. with the iron gauntlet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Different, different film. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> One thing we haven't really dwelt on, but the, the whole brought up Hobbes, I brought up Hegel, Nietzsche's idea of having good enemies being a, actually part of the good life. And so having this respected, I'm part of a, an elite selection of competitors in boxing or whatever the thing. In fact, we did a whole episode here on rap battles that like nobody's trying to, maybe not all of them have mutual respect for each other, but if you're going to go through the trouble of even having a match with them, you probably have some respect for them. And like that is, you know, it's entirely like mutual self-aggrandizement, you know, how we try to elevate the sport as a whole. You know, that's a great example of just something that having respected rivals 
that they might even actually be friends in some way. And so, Dylan, you're making me think of that with the whole, the good-natured, I'm a professional swordmaster, and I'm fighting you, and I respect you. I'm going to kill you, but I, <laughs> I have nothing but respect for you. Uh, you know, there's something very appealing about that as a trope. Should we have a, we're going to spoil the shit out of The Last Duel. Was there anything particular else from that movie that we want to emphasize that actually adds to this debate? I was pitching it as, again, as you've got a relationship between the two combatants that is sort of like in the duelists, as, we, as we've described, as something that has been festering over years. But really, it all pales before like an actual crime that's been committed against the wife of one of them, who's, who's really the main character of the movie. And so really, the film is not really about a duel at all. It's about her, you know, about <laughs> being a woman and being outside the circle of someone who can get justice in any way, but referring to some higher power. And I guess the fact that they can have a duel, I mean, they still have to have the king's blessing to do it. The two men, there's just this sort of impotence throughout of like, how can we resolve anything? Because it's always just like whoever's above us in the hierarchy gets to decide. And the guy uh, who is played by... Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, of course. Yes. Pierre. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> ben Affleck is like firmly on one of their sides and is not going to be objective at all. I guess the king is just going to take his. Was there an option? There was a live option that like they could just try to have the king decide this or it was just that whatever this council that was sort of doing this trial, since they could not believe her and had bad science information, like you can't get pregnant from a rape and things like this that they're relying on, that this duel was the only way that any sort of justice would have been achieved. There was the discussion with the priest that the option was to use the court of the church rather than the judicial duel to resolve the dispute. But I didn't, it didn't seem like that was going to do anything but keep people from dying. <laughs> it wasn't going to actually resolve the conflict. The king, I don't think, he didn't have to grant the duel. He could have no, just said, you know, sure. there's a court that's going to decide, and that's how we're going to do this. But he did. <laughs> and uh, that's, why we got, that's why we got a movie in a, in a really badass fight scene at the end. Yeah. And that part's portrayed as, you know, you have this teenager who is just an infant socially and in character who is, oh, goody, I can make this happen, right? So I have no idea how historically accurate that is, but it's definitely a kind of send up. And of course, her part is unspoken, but his pregnant queen is frequently filmed looking upon the whole thing in complete horror with respect to the stakes for Marguerite. For her and her child. Marguerite and her child stakes, which is really emphasized in it. And that she avoids, you know, the worst aspects of it is that in the end, the stakes for her are tremendous and horrible. Worse than it is for either of the combatants in the duel. Just to summarize, the movie is about she's married to Matt Damon, then Adam Driver rapes her, and then they those guys fight. But the thing is, if Matt Damon loses, she gets burned at the stake for lying because yes. the person she accused, if he wins, that means he was telling the truth and she's perjured herself. So we wanted to do a show on dueling. We picked a movie called The Last Duel. It just happened to be actually a movie about me too. <laughs> and uh, I think what it says about dueling is very critical, right? It's exactly that people who are outside of this Dueling is really about this, these stupid disputes between men, and they are, it's specifically excluding everyone who is not part of that elite circle. If it had ended the way that the film The Duel ended, in terms of just like the two men just having a feud, 
just hunting each other, just trying to assassinate each other over the course of years or something like that. And ending up in probably in that it was lawless enough that if somebody had just murdered the other one, eh, they, they might have gotten away with it. <laughs> it was your take on the politics of it was that it was no, no, it was that was so regimented that if the Matt Damon character had just gone and directly murdered in the street, the other guy, he probably would have oh. gotten executed, too, because he had. Oh, he definitely would have gotten because Ben Affleck was looming oh, yeah. over them, yes. etc. Yes. Yes. He's like killed his favorite orgy buddy. That's not cool, you know. <laughs> yeah. The uh, bro code, also known as the honor code, would not allow uh, that kind of reckless murder. There's also caprice just involved, right? I mean, even putting aside any kind of honor code, right? It was just that basically it's just purely hierarchical, and the person above you has more or less all authority over you, and you have very little to appeal. In fact, Matt Damon's character he gets the duel as an appeal effectively by appealing to the king to resolve the conflict by a duel. One of the things that in this one, as far as the politics of the dueling and the commentary on dueling, I was pushing towards what happens in other movies because often dual scenes, single combats, it's like we like the juiciness of single combat. It's all the fun of a boxing match, but then we're investing it with all this significance, right? So it's uh, Maximus versus Commodus and Gladiator, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. There's all sorts of things that are like worlds colliding. And it's like, which world will, will come out on top? But the reason I thought the last duel was exceptional, it overturned that because both of the duelists represented the same crappy patriarchal world that the movie's against. So instead of having good versus evil or two different, you know, alien versus Ripley, you just have like two assholes that (laughs) nobody likes anyway. Ending in the most realistic and uh, detailed, (laughs) like, I wonder if you get to keep your corpse if they make a corpse of you in a movie and they drag (laughs) it through the street and they hang it up by its feet and it's naked and it's just such a gross and great for <laughs> Halloween, you know? <laughs> you just, does Adam Driver get to keep that and put that in his, in his house somewhere to, to remind him? So uncanny. <laughs> Hollywood doppelganger corpse. Love it. All right. Well, I hope that anybody who was concerned about the spoilers stopped before I just told who won, but it's historical. <laughs> we, we, thing. we made it till then, didn't we? <laughs> yes. Well, thanks uh, for initiating this, and I encourage folks to read your article, Cliff, and I did find it very illuminating to think that pretty much every instance of a duel that we actually see in film is an aberrant kind, you know, as compared to the historical norm. So maybe we should, you know, change our perspective as far as that goes. It doesn't necessarily make me laud honor culture anymore. I just see it as fundamentally opposed to the, once we've expanded the circle of ethical concern, Outside of people that we can even be expected to have a common social framework with, right? We have to actually include the other in whatever profound sense it may appear to us. That means that we have to have an ethical system that does not have an an in-crowd fraternal aspect to it. It has to be more impersonal respect rather than something that we're holding ourselves to some rules that might seem arbitrary to the outside. So we move from rapiers to Russian roulette, I guess. Maybe. <laughs> that's one That's one possibility. <laughs> there might be others. Any any final thoughts from you, Dylan, on this experience? No, I, I enjoyed it. Cliff, any last words? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It was, it was really fun to talk to you guys. And it was really fun to watch The Last Duel. 
even though uh you know there's there's a ton of philosophy questions we could have gotten into that didn't have to do with dueling in that movie but yeah thanks it was fun today was fun as dylan and i as we were coming home from the movie the movie itself is not fun (laughs) people should not expect that <laughs> Mark, Mark asked me, "Did you enjoy it?" I said, "Well, it's not exactly the kind of movie I feel like you enjoy, even if you think it was well done." So, <laughs> yeah, I think I enjoyed the the beers and questions afterwards when I was chatting with my friends more than the uh, you know it was maybe it was shot so convincingly I felt like I was sitting in damp, bad medieval weather for three hours witnessing horrific crimes. It is a well a well rendered movie. Yeah, makes you think. <laughs> All right. Thanks, listeners. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com.